This is The Fire These Times, and I'm your host, Julia Yub. In this third season, we will be exploring internationalist solidarity, prefigurative politics, solar punk, and how to tackle some of the most pressing challenges of our times. Each episode will be on one or more of these topics. But before getting into today's topic, I wanted to quickly tell you that you can support this podcast for as little as $2 or $5 a month on patreon.com slash fire these times. That is patreon.com slash fire these times. If you cannot donate, you can still support by sharing it with your friends and families and leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps it get more exposure and introduce it to more folks. That's it for me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. My name is Anna. Uh, I live in the United States. I am Armenian, like Karita. Um, and I have a background in law and human rights. And that That's it. I really like to sew. There's a lot of sewing equipment like in the immediate background of this video. Uh, my name is Karina Abedisian. I am also Armenian, as Anna mentioned. <laughs> I have a background in academia. I have a PhD in social movements and Russian studies. But currently, I am a copy editor for EVN Report, which is an independent uh, news outlet in Armenia. Um, and I also work on disinformation and political communication. So I've been I've been pronouncing y'all's last name and the way we do so in Lebanon, and I actually have no idea whether it's accurate. <laughs> Try it. It's just it's just Avidisian. Yeah, we would say the Yan. Ah, okay, cool. Okay, cool. I'm saying it the American way. Right. Yes. Okay. So it's it it is actually Kardashian, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course. I'm assuming that's how they say it at home as well. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> So we, we have a lot uh, to go through today. It's actually ridiculous, the number of bullet points that we set out for ourselves. <laughs> we'll see what we're going to do. <laughs> um, the main thread will be around, and this is what I wrote, Armenianness and how the Armenian struggles, uh, struggle especially... What the fuck? Did I, sorry. Yeah, how the... <laughs> Armenianness and how the Armenian struggle... Um, relates to other historically oppressed peoples. Uh, what does it... How has it changed over time, maybe? And obviously, in current context, given that there's so much that has happened in the past year, uh, by the time this is out, I think it will be one year since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine has started. Um, so February, yeah, more or less. Uh, so obviously, we'll talk about that as well. But I guess I'll just ask you to kind of start us off by... Telling us how have you been talking about this topic on your own podcast? Obviously, mention your podcast. This will be on your podcast as well, Obscuristan, or Obscuristan, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, Stian, <laughs> and we we will just take it from there, I guess. Uh, so, how how have you thought about? this uh this phenomenon this identity armenianness and how do you, uh, how would you define its very complicated um positionality and 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 place in the world today um our podcast obscuristan is really about eurasia so honestly the former soviet union without calling it that um and one thing we've noticed and i think perhaps the war in ukraine is one of the 
pushes, one of the triggering kind of events happening in the world that pushed us to actually start the podcast because we wanted to hear more kind of decolonial conversations around Armenian identity in the region. um, And we just weren't hearing that. And we wanted to speak from a broader perspective, like not only as two Armenian women talking about Armenia and Armenianess, but, you know, kind of broadening the, the scope. And one of the things that we've noticed at least I've noticed on Twitter, um, is these conversations that have been spearheaded by Ukrainians around decolonizing their identity um, was being picked up a lot by Central Asians, um, a lot of thinkers in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. And this is something we've noticed is kind of missing from Armenian discourse. And there's reasons for this and their historical and political um, and especially with, you know, regards to the current situation around Artsakh and Azerbaijan and the kind of existential threat that Armenians are facing right now, the position of the Russian peacekeepers in quotations. Um, and I feel like the geopolitical situation is, is a huge obstacle to a lot of these kind of critical, um, critical thinking, critical discourse that we could be having around this um, and kind of plugging into these broader conversations that people are having and learning from one another. And um, also, you know, offering our perspective because I think it's, it is unique. They're all unique. Um, but I think that because we're not participating in these conversations, there's a big piece missing that would contribute to everyone's understanding of what it means to be kind of post-Soviet. Um, yeah. God, that gave a really, really good background of like what pushed us to start the podcast. Um, there's also kind of this element of like, Armenia, you, you mentioned positionality, um, which is like one of the worst words ever, but super important <laughs> um, because Armenian identity is really, has been kind of screwed up by um, like a lot of experiences with empire, obviously a lot of experiences with genocide, um, but something that like isn't often recognized and that people don't realize from the outside is that like there's a pretty dis- like there's a distinct identity between being an Armenian in the diaspora, between being an Armenian in Armenia, and also like between all of the historic positions that come with that. So there are Eastern Armenians and Western Armenians. And, you know, for better or for worse, those are those come with different baggage. Um, or those and it comes with a lot of, you know, the same baggage because we interact together and we have a shared history. Um, but there's like also a distinction there and, um, it messes with the positionality of who we are. Um, there's also difficulty because Armenians exist in a lot of other countries. And so our positionality in those countries is also important and different than what our positionality in Armenia is, which I noticed gets really screwed up in the United States because, um, like of how black uh, white supremacy works, God, how white supremacy works in the United States, and how racism works in the United States, and how like connected and pervasive it is, and connected to chattel slavery it is. So Armenians' positionality when it comes to race in the U.S. is very different than our position as a global minority, as like a people in our native land and our indigenous in our indigenous land. And I think that is not something that. Um, a, Armenians have advocating that advocated very well around historically in the United States. Um, but it's also not something that's like very easy to explain to what is a like global conversation um, within leftism that's very Western focused um, because it's it's pretty hard to um, 
it's pretty hard to make sense of that even for ourselves and like trying to explain it outwards that like, well, we occupy one position here and one very, very, very different position um, on our indigenous lands is also really complicated, um, especially as like uh, like the U.S. exports its own racial, the U.S. leftists export their own racial politics and their own ethnic politics onto the rest of the world. Um, so that's a couple of words about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can already identify a lot. Obviously, there is, well, I'll try and express myself well. I've tried a number of times and I think it always came out like, just like, badly. Like, it just hasn't been a completed thought because it's such a complicated thing for me. I grew up obviously in, in Lebanon and in Lebanon, Armenians are just one group like the other groups, right? Like you have Shias, you have Sunnis, you have Maronites, and then you have Armenians. And within Armenians, you have Catholics and you have, you know, all of that stuff. And I, I, I'm reminded of a, um, frankly ridiculous interview with a uh, Lebanese Armenian politician whose name I don't remember it was a long time ago and he was being asked by the host uh, another Lebanese uh, Lebanese woman um, like do you identify as Armenian or Lebanese and because of course having more than one identity is too complicated and he uh, he responded something that just it's it, it just glued to my to my mind right like he said I'm Lebanese by identity and Armenian by sect because in Lebanon, everything has to have the main identity, the OG identity, which is Lebanese. And then, you know, you could subsume the rest of them. You can kind of, you have a sub-identity, which is your sect. And this was his way, actually, I'm sure, I mean, I don't, as I said, I don't remember who he was, but maybe in some ways he was just trying to be diplomatic in his answer in the sense that in Lebanon, as I said, like you have all of these sub-identities and whatnot, but it's usually bad form to primarily identify with uh, your sect before identifying with your nationality in in at least publicly privately people do it um so maybe this was his way of of kind of uh speaking to that audience right but this is why for me like when and hopefully we'll get into it a bit more but when i actually went to armenia in 2015 i I went there with a certain baggage, right? Like what I what I thought Armenianist might be. I had done a bit of research. I had done not Armenianist, but what Armenian culture, for lack of a better term, would be. I had done a bit of research. I've done, you know, read some stuff and whatnot. But I was mostly there on kind of just it was the centennial of the genocide. So I was there kind of as a reporter more than anything. I didn't have much time to do else. And then I went there with a couple of Lebanese Armenian friends um, from Beirut to Yerevan. There were direct flights for for that occasion. And they told me that they actually don't understand much of what uh, folks in Yerevan were saying. It's not not necessarily just the language. Of course, I know that the language is very different, or at least, uh, yeah, whatever, it's different. But just in terms of like, they when they were there, they identified as Lebanese. And I found that very interesting because in Lebanon, most Armenians, maybe it's a cliche, but most Armenians would say like, I'm Armenian. They would say I'm Lebanese too, but they would say I'm Armenian. Like it's something that that is mentioned. Whereas the, the, one of the first things I remember upon arriving in Yerevan is, yeah, I'm like basically that they see themselves as Lebanese Armenians going to Armenian Armenians. They would say Armenian Armenians twice. Arman, Arman. They would say it twice. <laughs> like OG Armenians or something. <laughs> But yeah, so this is this is what I sort of have in mind, and this is why I, for me, um, the Armenian context has always felt kind of a kindred context, uh, one that is different. Uh, it's not the same. There are lots of differences, but it's also like not entirely alien um, to me in that sense because I've had this this a bit of a, of a background. So anyway, th- those were a lot of words as well. I really um, relate to your friends. 
Oddly enough, in a different way, because I grew up in the U.S. and then I, I basically was educated in the U.K. and I felt super American when I'm in the U.K. when I was in the U.K. Um, so it's just kind of I guess when you're confronted with this kind of opposing, kind of conflicting identity, you the the other piece of you seems to kind of stand out more. Like the the contours of it will are mm-hmm. just sort of more obvious. Um, and my background is also, I'm not Armenian, Armenian, I'm Persian Armenian. So my family's from Iran and I come from that culture and there's, you know, obviously still Armenian and speaking Armenian in the home to some extent, my little brother actually doesn't speak Armenian, but you know, um, we're kind of different (laughs) in that sense because we've lived in Iran for at least 400 years in some cases longer. And it's something that you feel also in in interactions with other people because sometimes they'll kind of treat you differently um, as a diasporan, also depending on where you come from. Um, sometimes I'll tell people I'm a diasporan and they'll ask me, are you from Beirut? Because they're just more familiar with that. You know, are you Lebanese Armenian? I'm like, no, I'm Persian Armenian. They're like, oh, okay. So. This is the only context in which some like Lebanon is kind of known <laughs> or one of the few contexts. Yeah, Lebanon's like the center. Yeah, it's like, it's just one of the few contexts in which I've heard, no, I'm actually from Beirut or are you from Beirut? Like, and because where else would that pop up? <laughs> yeah, it's like a pretty familiar place. Like it's a very, like, it's a very central place in Armenian identity as much as Yerevan or like, Absolutely. yeah, like it, it, other places have become very central to Armenian identity um, as much as people, like places that people would associate with our, with, our, with Armenians. Um, it's also worth noting that it like kind of creates um, a difficulty with Armenian advocacy because most Armenian advocacy outside of Armenia is obviously done by Armenians who um, aren't from or not. We actually don't know the numbers on this, but not that they're not from Armenia, but they're um, not living in Armenia. Mm-hmm. Um, and a good chunk of them, uh, like half or less than half or maybe more than half is um, are Western Armenians, so many of them may not even have relationships to Armenia that are um, substantial, is like, I think, a good way to put it. Um, Some people have, like, some of them have never been to Armenia, which is fine. Um, Some of them have, you know, like, no connection to it in terms of, like, it's not, it's not a place that they have, like, a a regular or even sort of, like, a personal um, connection Mm to. And that changes what Armenian advocacy looks like, because... It changes the centrality of issues. It changes your positionality within the Armenian community. Um, and it creates like really kind of difficult. Um, it, it creates really difficult conversations um, because it can sort of veer into like judging Armenianness when in reality it's like it's a very real question of like, well, there are, you know, there's a con- there there's a conflict. There is um, sort of like a crisis right now. And there has been for a while. Um, and in advocating for that or about that, you like you always want to send like in any in any form of advocacy, you always want to center people closest to the conflict. You always want to center people like absolutely most affected by the thing that you're advocate- advocating for. And that becomes very difficult in the Armenian community because we all have a shared history of trauma. We all have a, a shared history of like connection to um, erasure. Um, but, you know, sort of the voice of people from the Republic of Artsakh um, or Artsakhtis or Karabakhtis like kind of used interchangeably um like it, it can get they're they're so small and there's like there's so few of them that it can get erased even within armenia itself um so but i wanted to like i wanted to kind of go back and zoom out as to like why that happened and what that is because like yes there are historical 
um, like, you know, like subgroups within the Armenian community. But some of that is also like deliberately and kind of some of that is deliberately inflated by the history of empire. Um, so Armenians are people who've lived under many different empires and who've historically been like have um, transcended borders. Uh, like Ar- Armenians as a group have always had identity um, for most of their own history or most of our own history across state or like state-like lines. Um, mm-hmm. So even when they were distinct entities that, you know, were governing them, Armenians sort of like traversed that, which created a really like, I mean, kind of a cool culture because on the one hand, like while Eastern Armenians who were living under the Russian empire were obviously deeply influenced by Russianness and by Russian identity and by Russian culture and by ca- the culture of, you know, the Caucasus um, and Caucasus groups like you know, Georgians, Dagestanis, um, Abkhazians, etc., um, they were also still fundamentally connected to, um, like, further west. So they were more connected to, I guess, like what you would now describe as the Middle East, to Middle Eastern culture, to Levantine culture. Um, and that created, like, a sort of different group identity because they always were connected both to their empire and also out beyond. Um, which is, I don't know, kind of an interesting history to think about. But I want to talk, I want us to, like, get into a little bit of the connections to our imperial cultures a little bit because I think it's like we started by talking about the war in Ukraine and Mm -hmm. my like my experience in looking at the Armenian community when the war in Ukraine started was really bizarre because as somebody Mm -hmm. with a lot of connections to Russia to Ukraine to like having family in Ukraine and things like that like it was a like my reaction was one thing but seeing Armenians who had very little connection to that had a very different reaction to it and so um like people would ask me, like especially like you know, like my Indian friends here, or, like their parents especially would be like, "Oh, like what do Armenians think of the conflict in Ukraine?" And I'd be like, "I don't, I don't know. I don't want to answer this question. <laughs> like I really know." <laughs> uh, but yeah, can you? So I mean, we can we can get into that. Yeah, I wanted to add something onto that actually with with what Anna was saying. I mean, there's this you know historical legacy that also um, you know impacts that. Anna touched on a lot of that. I think one of the most kind of interesting things for me is to remember how after the 1915 genocide, so many Armenian refugees and orphans ended up in Beirut and created a new life essentially, and one in which there was you know. A, kind of a strong boundary, I would guess. I don't know too much about it, but they they were super Armenian. They were able to um, do commerce, educate, you know, have, have a civic life and everything was conducted in the Armenian language. And to the point where um, there was just more institution building in Beirut in terms of the Armenian diaspora than there were in other places. So much so that when, when I meet another Beirut Armenian, I'm just constantly um, so impressed by their knowledge of the Armenian language. It's so deep and they're connected to kind of contemporary Armenian literature. They're producing culture. Um, and that comes with a little bit of um, maybe superiority complex and arrogance that has been noted in surveys. For example, there's like academics in the West, Armenian diaspora academics who've done research on, um, you know, language, learning Armenian in the diaspora and the sense of, you know, inferiority if you don't speak Armenian perfectly, because there's always this community of Beirut Armenians, which just like seems to just be so good at it that you just don't want to even try because you know, you're going to make a mistake and they might judge you, you know, it's a perception, um, you know, to what degree that's actually true is, you know, um, I don't know, but, um, because of this history 
in this reality, the cultural institutions that Beirut Armenians created have been so influential across the world because after the Lebanese Civil War, so many Armenian Lebanese Armenians went to the U.S. and they reestablished or established a new these same kind of institutions. And these are the most influential ones. So when we're dealing with kind of contemporary political, geopolitical issues within the Republic of Armenia, it's these diaspora institutions that are quite dominant. And they don't necessarily, they're not on the ground mm-hmm. um, in the way that, you know, obviously people here are. And there's a lot of miscommunication, misunderstanding. Um, they, I'm, you know, I don't think anyone's ever doubted that they have the best intentions for the Republic of Armenia, but there's still this disconnect and lack of kind of um, perhaps skin in the game. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they, they, it's not their sons going to the military, for example, getting conscripted. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is just kind of a simplistic, you know, quick thing that I wanted to just touch on because, you know, I think it's enlightening in some, in some way. I also want to like, I, like God and I see this for you, um, and I, I'm feeling it too. Like there is like an inherent discomfort talking about this because it is like it's very weird and very like a little bit scary to talk about like divisions within within the Armenian community because it always feels like that's like a judgment on Armenianness, yeah. which it really shouldn't mm, be, and yeah. it is not. Um, Absolutely. And then there's also yeah, and then there's also like that like very strange perception of like you're always in crisis, you're always trying to advocate for something, and so having a conversation with like you, Joey, who like you know you're you're not Armenian about like what are these divisions in the Armenian community gets like really like it's it's sort of a scary thing to do because um it's like a it's a weird thing to like converse about outwards, um, but it's something very real that happens when communities are like split artificially by like imperial histories, um, because like, again, like Armenians always have, have had a connection across empires, um, but over time, and I feel like over the course of um, more and more divides and also like over the course of more diasporization, like, you know, we've obviously been thrown even further from each other than we like generally would have been. I think that's compounded. And I also think that like it begins to like our relationships with, our, with the respective empires that affect us most begin to um, have much more of an impact. So like, you know, my family's like the, my family history, we've had much more of an impact. Uh, the, the Russian empire has had much more of an impact on us. So that's like a, that's a like that's a real sort of fear and conversation in our household. Um, and not, that's not to say that all Armenians who've like been impacted by the Russian empire view it the same way. They don't. Um, like even within our family, it is impossible to get consensus. Um, but it's, again, that's the dominant conversation. If you, you know, move, move to the West with Western Armenians who've obviously been mostly impacted by Turkish imperialism, by pan-Turkism, by Turanism, um, then their perspectives are going to be very different because that's the predominant force in their life. Um, and that, like, that, that creates, like, that creates advocacy difficulties, but it also creates, like, the, it's it's very bizarre because those divisions were sort of almost not deliberately sown, but they were they're also a consequence of genocide and diasporization and sort of the um, like spreading out of Armenians. Um, and they like it creates like a difficulty in talking about this, too. Um, but also like it it, it creates. It, it, it creates a problem of like identifying Armenians positionality too, because there are conflicts within which like we write, like we have very clear connections to, and we have like really important like um, relationships to, 
but because of you know the way that Armenian like advocacy and discu- the discussions about Armenianness works, and because of like the sort of sense of desperation that Armenians have all the time, uh, they don't really get discussed. So like our connection or our positionality or or our relationship to the Ukrainian conflict isn't really fully explored. And it's often really reductive. That conversation is very reductive. Um, I know I've seen it. I know God has seen it. It's so fucking reductive. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? Yes, yes. <laughs> great, great. It's really fucking reductive. Um, and and then like, and, and then, you know, the same thing of like our relationship to um, the, you know, revolution right now in Iran that conversation becomes very reductive too, because Armenia, the state has a, we have a, we have a relationship to the state of Iran. Um, but our, you know, the possibility of our solidarity with the people of Iran gets sort of like reduced, like beyond that. Um, mm-hmm. very similar to our relationships, like, you know, like Kurdish liberation. Um, mm-hmm. and those things like diaspora creates problems in talking about that, but like more importantly, empire creates problems in talking about that because you're forced to make a lot of really shitty choices to survive. And that sort of precludes, yeah. like, it, it, and, and because you're really small, because you're diasporized, it prevents, like, other people from having a slightly more nuanced perspective on, you know, why the state of Armenia may, make, may, may be making certain choices and why that's not necessarily a reflection on, like, what, uh, the, you know, the positionality of all Armenian people is or why, you know, Armenian mm-hmm. institutions in the U.S. may be making certain choices and saying certain things, but why that's, again, not a full reflection on what the positionality of Armenian people as a whole is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I don't know which episode this is going to be, but there's been like 120 plus something so far. And although I study um, diaspora, like diaspora studies is one of the stuff I do, and I focus on the Lebanese diaspora, I haven't done any episode on it yet, because I honestly have no idea where to start. I'm still trying to figure out what to do and how to, how to go about it, because it, it changes a lot depending on the context. And some of the main ones that those who are familiar would know would be obviously the US, like Lebanese Americans and maybe Lebanese French uh, to, to some extent as well. And then we're kind of spread out all over the, the rest of the world as well. And obviously in Latin, in Latin America is completely different because that's an older uh, migration. It's why I have the Argentinian passport and I've never been there. Uh, it's it's uh, passed down by, you know, the, my, my grandfather had it, you know, all of that stuff. And they are obviously they're integrated quote unquote in that culture in a different way than in in the US culture and the French culture or what what have you what's very interesting to me is that it often gets not i'm not going to say it often gets um simplified only because i mean yes that that is the case but i see lots of members of that diaspora whether it's first gen second third fourth whatever also participate in these uh, simplifications and often actually providing cover um, you know, for the because if otherwise you're going to accuse, let's say, a white person of uh, racism, and actually they they are able to cite you five or six or seven Lebanese Americans, let's say, who are actually saying the same thing that that racist person is saying, it's like you're almost giving like a racial yeah. cover, you know, to to yeah. that person. And this happens a lot. Like obviously, we, we've in Syria also, it's it's become it's it like it's a thing. It's it's a it's a regular phenomenon. But yeah, anyway, so all of this to say that. Maybe one day I'll do, I mean, I hope one day I'll do an episode on diaspora specifically. But for our purpose now, um, obviously, when we started saying we started, this will go out roughly around the same time when the the full-scale invasion, second invasion of Ukraine by, by Russia, Russian troops um, started. Um, let's get into the very complicated and messy um, 
situation or the weeds, if you want, of how um, Armenians, or maybe if we don't want to generalize too much, but at least those that you have heard about, um, how have they kind of positioned themselves in relation to this and how does it differ, let's say, from the one diaspora to another? You know, all of this would be kind of like broad strokes and broad generalization because it's the only way to talk about it. But let's let's try anyway, uh, if you don't mind. I'm just wading into the fire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh God, here we go. I know. <laughs> here we go. We're actually doing it now. <laughs> I think initially one of the things I noticed was just this exasperation on the part of Armenians around the attention that Ukraine was getting from the world, and especially the West, um, the sympathy um, and support. And I think I, I personally know of some people who would, should be, you know, uh, naturally aligned with the Ukrainian people and supporting them. And they're either quiet about it. Honestly, like they just haven't said anything about it. And I've heard mm-hmm. a lot of um, similar sentiment from Syrians um, around this, although there is this kind of natural um, connection with Ukraine, obviously, you know, both being victims of Russian um, military mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, aggression. But I think because of that um, international attention on the plight of Ukrainians and, the, and this kind of understanding that, you know, obviously they're being invaded by another country and they're defending themselves as anyone else would do. Whereas in the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war, you know, Armenians felt that the same thing was happening to Armenians there. They were being attacked by this aggressor and there was none of that kind of sympathy. So I think there was honestly a lot of it was burnout because Armenians are just, yeah. uh, you know, dealing with existential crisis after existential crisis that it was really hard. But um, I think I maybe want to give the floor to Anna now um, before we go into kind of what the current situation around the Russian peacekeepers and how that impacts you know, Armenians' view of the Ukraine war, um, you know, how, how all of that is informed. Yeah, I think that a lot of it was like, I mean, it's like it's in the U.S. especially the response to, you know, um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was uh, extremely tinged, not tinged. It was just like it was borne out by racism. Um, and you can see that like even in the most basic structures of how like the U.S. government responded, um, like the United for Ukraine program, which is the refugee. It's basically the refugee program that allows Ukrainians into the U.S. is extremely efficient. Um, like my family has some experience with it now, even personally. So like both professionally and personally, super efficient. Um, it works pretty quickly. It's pretty simple. Um, that is like the biggest contrast to the godforsaken nightmare that has been getting refugees from Afghanistan into the United States. Um, and like the just hoops that like uh, hoops is not even like enough of a word, the absolute like hell that they've had, they have to go through that is set up by the United States in order to be able to get them here. The requirements are shifting. They've changed, you know, what like the promises have been, so many promises have been broken. Um, It was not planned ahead of time. And then it was a disaster when it was planned. So things like that, like pretty obviously show that, you know, the response of the United States was, um, yeah, like it came from a racist place. Um, Unfortunately, what ha- like what that means is that like uh, the United like there was a lot of sympathy. Tw- not unfortunately, th- what that means is that there was a lot of sympathy towards Ukrainians, which is as it should be. Um, and like you, what you really don't want to do, and like what like I didn't want to do, both having like you know personal connection to this conflict, and also just like an understanding of what the power structures at play are, um, is then use that to reduce like the struggle of Ukrainians for um, their own rights. Um, mm-hmm. 
And that I think like is where like Karina was like describing like real burnout for Armenians because you're seeing this like sympathy, you're seeing it tinged by racism. And we occupy a really complicated position when it comes to race. Um, we conveniently fall in and out of like, you know, categorizations of whiteness um, depending on like what's going on. And that actually can tell you a lot about what whiteness means in the US, but that's a whole other freaking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that I think like made a lot of Armenians extremely wary. That and then the fact that the state of Ukraine, the Ukrainian government, um, positioned itself as an ally of Azerbaijan. Um, mm-hmm. There was like a lot of, um, I still actually like, there was there were a lot of like rumors that they'd sold white phosphorus. Those were debunked to some degree. Um, I'm like pretty sure it's not true, but it's also honestly hard to like even keep track yeah. of that because they had positioned themselves as allies of Azerbaijan. So there was a relationship between those two governments as well. Um, and because... As peoples in Eurasia and the former Soviet Union, there are unfortunately very few connections comparatively amongst ourselves, like straight across um, from like straight from Ukrainians to Armenians, as opposed to from Armenians to Russians and then to Ukrainians or to, you know, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, to those Mm -hmm. narratives that it became really hard to have a nuanced conversation about this. And so um, a lot of Armenians really shut down, especially, I think, in the United States and in Armenia, I, I don't want like God and I would be able to tell you more about this, but like from my experience, it became an even bigger freaking nightmare because you've got Russia as the, you know, closest thing resembling a peace guarantor, which is, I don't know, it's like, it's, I guess, like saying a scarecrow resembles Julia Roberts. Like they're like, they're like, they're just fundamentally different things. And yet that's, that's the position that it's occupying. Cause that's what they've got. Um, so you have that relationship of just like, absolute frozen like i'm not fucking touching this like you just can't like you're you, you don't want to touch it and then you know and plus like the, the reality that like for a lot of armenians because that is the closest thing they have resembling a security guarantor um they're like this is it these are the only people who've done anything for us the russians and so um i'm not like we're not we're not like i'm not i'm not biting the hand that feeds us um which is also really fucked up because if you're talking about liberation uh we've been forced to make you know unholy alliances and ukrainians have also been put in a position where i wouldn't like where unholy like the you know state alliances that have been formed are um have very little to do with like like on the ground liberation is what Mm -hmm. i would say um Mm -hmm. and so and that's not to say that they're not like they're not they're not related at all because that would be also wrong like we also have to own our shit like we have to own our relationship to russia in the same way that ukrainians have to own their relationship to azerbaijan um and i think like that's those are conversations that'd be really nice to have with people because when you're actually having this conversation it's it's pretty easy to like parse out that nuance and be like well here here's my worldview here's the like vision of liberation that i have and here's the liberation vision of liberation that i'm fighting for um but you know when you when you zoom out and when those conversations don't happen. And then also when you're like having those conversations via sort of imperial narratives, you're fucked because you're always going to sort of be reduced to state action. You're going to be reduced to like the visible actions of powerful groups. Um, And that has created a lot of trouble, I would say. And it's also, I think created a lot of um, roadblocks to like liberation movements in all former Soviet union countries. Um, because their connections to each other are really minimal. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the episode before this one, if I'm not mistaken, is going to be on the topic of quote unquote multipolarity, and this is something that we've seen pop up a lot on the 
uh, health sites that are social media. Um, and the title of that episode is going to be Against Multipolar Imperialism. And so I had on uh, Kavita Krishnan, who is an Indian feminist, who was recently part, uh, recently departed the one of the communist parties of India uh, over uh, these issues. She was one of uh, she was a member of the Politburo of one of them. I forgot the name, but it's one of them. Um, Promise Lee, who is a Hong Konger in LA right now, uh, effectively in exile, who writes for Lausanne, uh, this very good, nice website that I contribute to from time to time. Uh, Romeo Kokriatsky, uh, Ukrainian, um, Ukrainian American, actually um, writer, journalist, and whatnot, who's currently also in Ukraine and who has his own podcast, Ukraine Without Hype, and myself. And so we were talking about this idea of of multipolarity. And the reason why I'm bringing it up here, and for me, multipolarity, especially the way it's conceived these days, it's it's just equivalent to multipolar imperialism yes. or imperial whatever. It's just the same thing. And we've seen a number of times. I'm spacing out on which. British intellectual, intellectual quotation, w- said this, but <laughs> right, right, after, right after the the recent invasion, like a few weeks after, whatnot. Basically, it's that whole thing that we need to be sensitive to Russia's demands in Ukraine because Ukraine is in Russia's backyard, yeah. right? Or Russia's sphere of influence, you know, all, all these They're things. Back what now? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, so these these narratives are maybe not always expressed in those terms. You know, most people, I think, wouldn't use those terms if they're like sensitive enough, maybe, or kind of smart about it or whatever. But the, the underlying logic of that is something that I think is, I mean, I haven't done a survey, but I think is relatively common. And I think of just basic non-political quote-unquote conversation I've had with family members who only check the news from time to time. And a lot of them, for example, don't know much about, I'm talking about Ukraine, Russia here, so don't know much about Ukraine and kind of just assume that Ukraine, Russia, there, there's some deep connection there. And it's like, as Kavita herself mentioned in the, in the thing, it's like the position is that Ukraine is a lesser Russia. Right, mm-hmm. or and Belarus gets talked about in the same way. Although these days Lukashenko kind of takes over, but it's it's one of those things. And then when Ukrainians themselves say no, that is not the case. It's almost like there's a bit of resentment. I don't know if that's the but like, there's something like you're complicating our worldview too much now. We're used to categorizing, putting boxes on the map. The map is kind of clean, it's cute, it's nice, you know, we can color code it. Uh, this is the Russia-ish space. This is the... Um, uh, people who are listening to this have no idea what I'm doing with my hands. And this is the... <laughs> this is the <laughs> danger of cameras. I think people can see my hands. <laughs> but like, you know, oh, this is, you know, ex-Ottomans and, you know, whatever. All of that stuff. Obviously, again, not always framed in those terms. I feel like the logic that when it of the time when it used to be framed in those terms has kind of just been recycled to to accommodate our present moment, but is barely more nuanced than it was like a hundred years ago, if at all. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I, no, I just ran into this. Sorry. Uh, go, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I just ran into this issue in um, a class I am taking. Um, and... It, an international law class and there was this like conversation about it was about legitimacy and the legitimacy of international law and it was really frustrating and fascinating to see how sort of all of the suggestions were like also cycled through state apparatuses um so you had these like suggestions to make international law more legitimate um 
maybe more fair and like you know like what like it's, it's a much bigger conversation but they were all sort of I was like taking a step back and thinking well all these things really do is formalize regional imperialisms um and there's a there's a very there's unfortunately not a huge recognition of that um or a conversation around that there, there, there are now there's there have been some books that have been written um that are pretty good which i can't remember the fucking course um that have come, been coming out pretty recently um but still like that that identification with state apparatuses that like filtering of everything through state apparatuses is like a, 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 like a huge impediment i would say but i think something that's like like bizarre and makes the armenian community particularly um like weird in this area is that we've always transcended state apparatuses we have always been a community beyond uh like borders uh, not to get cliche but we have like that's it's literally always been people that are you know if you map armenians they don't follow state borders um and that creates in a world where everything is filtered through states, in a world where all narratives are filtered through states and conversations about identity are, are filtered through states, you run into really big problems. And mm -hmm. of course, Armenians, like all people, have also taken on this like narrative structure because I've noticed that people also filter everything through states, Joey, like you were saying, where like they've got a certain vision of the world and and the, and the lines help. The lines help you kind of identify shit and you like the lines and that's I get that. Like, you know, that they're they're how the, you do the lines world. are the lines are cozy. <laughs> yeah, they're cozy, they're color coded, they're nice. <laughs> but like it's, you know, they're helpful. Like you need some way to see this world because it's huge and 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 there are people freaking everywhere. And imagine like, you know, conceiving of it without the lines. Like it's hard. Um and so, you know, Armenians themselves also filter our narratives through this like state mindset sometimes and then we hit this wall because it's thoroughly unhelpful for us which you know as we've been like we've been describing these internal advocacy problems but it creates external advocacy issues too because you know you're trying like I, for western armenians i imagine it's it's a, like it's really freaking difficult trying to explain that like your connection to land has not much to do with modern day the state of armenia that like your connection to land runs deeper than a state identity. Um, and for Artsakhsis, that's hard too, because, mm -hmm. you know, which is also why Artsakhsis have a struggle for a, for statehood, because that's sort of the thing that gives you access to rights in this world. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But their struggle goes beyond like a state identity. Like it's, it's, it, it existed long before there was a struggle for state identity. Um, that's just the flavor of how it's be, it's been construed now, because that's the thing that will give them access to most rights. But Fundamentally, it's about, you know, the right to live freely without ethnic and racial oppression. Um, but in like, you know, it's it's hard to position yourself as like with your natural allies when all of you are filtering your narratives through states, because that's the thing that gives you access to um, political, legal and economic rights. Mm -hmm. I think one of the impediments to that also um, goes back to what you were saying earlier, Joey, in your question about Western analysts kind of oversimplifying the Ukraine conflict and kind of saying this is Russia's backyard. I think Russian studies as an institution in the West is largely to blame. And I think some academics have been starting to do some um, critical work around decolonizing Russian studies. And as someone with a Russian mm -hmm. studies background, I have a master's and PhD in Russian studies. I've noticed this as well, right, within, you know, these institutions of higher education where 
most of the opportunities, research opportunities, grant opportunities were centered around Russia. And most of the specialists chose Russia as their topic. And in these institutions, they also kind of subsume studies of like Central Asia, the Caucasus, even like Central um, East Europe. The Russia people were the ones who, who kind of were at the top of the hierarchy. And when you start kind of decolonizing the study, the scholarship of the region, you actually find the Russia analyst acting like Russian imperialists in the sense that they feel threatened, their re- their work is threatened, their worldview is threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and their careers. Huh? And their careers, because they their make careers. a career off of Absolutely. commenting on stuff that they didn't study. Absolutely. And I think... Um, with more of these critical discussions, you know, I think the Armenian struggle, as Anna was saying, um, would be put kind of cast in a different light, in a more nuanced light um, that wouldn't see it as, for example, you know, this is this is a territorial integrity of Azerbaijan and just kind of leave it at that, like, you know, end the conversation at that. Um, Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You know, I, so I, a couple of things. Um, one, I mean... Just to maybe emphasize what you were saying and how deep that goes, uh, I'm th- I'm thinking of I was looking it up while you were talking like the the comments of the Pope of all people, uh, which oh. when did he say this? I don't know some some <laughs> weeks ago. Whatever doesn't matter. But he said like um, so it was while commenting on the cruelty of Russian troops in Ukraine that quote the cruelest troops are perhaps do- are perhaps those who are <sighs> sorry those who are of Russia but not of the Russian tradition, such as the Chechens, the Buryats, and so on. It's so specific. <laughs> I talked about this. Yeah. <laughs> we were recording an episode on Chechnya, and we talked about this, and we were like, what did the fucking Chechens do to you? Like, what did you... The Buryats. Where did... Like, like, had, yeah, like what, what did why? the Pope know about Buryatia before he suddenly just, like threw this freaking co- Molotov cocktail at them. Like, why, dude? Yeah. But also, so, what do you know so, about the Russian tradition? Like, what are you here commenting on the Russian that? tradition? Yeah, like like they well, didn't freaking colonize and, like, destroy all of these people in their land. My God. Uh, but, you know, right, that, that example is, is <laughs> just for me, it just exemplifies so much just the attitude in general and how like it wasn't really i mean it was followed by outrage in the spaces that i followed but it wasn't this huge thing that made the news and people were talking about it 24 7 it's like what the fuck did no no it was just a comment and that's it and obviously he's the pope so you can say stuff you know stuff like that and for me it's very telling and again i just use them an example but in the early days of when the when the invasion started, I, w- I won't I won't do too much on this because I have other episodes that focus more on Ukraine. But I sort of had the sense, and it was kind of backed up by other folks in, in like on Signal that I was talking to and, and so on. Karina knows some of them. And kind of the sense that um, there is a deep cynicism in the West, in Europe, uh, specifically in my case, but also in America, um, towards Ukraine-Russia. And it's actually took some time and I'm talking after the invasion it actually took some time and even now it's still kind of half half hearted I'm talking at the official level and the discourses that are being talked about uh, that are being used it's almost like you get the sense at some point like Ukraine was like again almost inconvenient like we don't want we cannot deal with this now almost like again I'm, I'm kind of using it as a you know characterization but 
or caricature, but those those I'm, I'm basically paraphrasing, you know, a number of uh, German politicians, French politicians and whatnot who have basically said this. Like, we have our own priority, we don't have a dog in this fight, all of that stuff. And I find that very interesting, but I'll, I'll just pin this for now because I don't want to do too much on that. Um, for those who don't know, um, I think... I actually have no idea, but I assume most folks have some general idea of uh, Azerbaijan v Armenia, <laughs> not putting in quotation, mm. like they have maybe some idea of the context, maybe, but I think overall, uh, this is one of those things I understood kind of like later on, that growing up in Lebanon, I actually knew more uh, on average <laughs> than a lot, of, a lot of folks who did not grow up in Lebanon, and it's one of those things that's very random if you don't know anything about the context, but yeah, so... What can you tell us about it, at least for the purpose of this conversation? Obviously, folks can listen to your podcast as well for more in-depth stuff. But like, what can you tell us about it just for this purpose? I think first of all, I'm shocked that you said that. Yeah, when Joey was like, I think people know some things. Me and Karna were like, huh? <laughs> so I don't know. I try to be nice. As- <laughs> that was so nice. <laughs> um, and then we're going to come in and be bitches. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Go for it. Um, God. Okay, I, I maybe listen to the episode zero of the podcast because we're gonna butcher whatever explanation we start with now. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say, I think that to start with, most people don't know about it, um, mm-hmm. which is sort of the unfortunate—not to correct you, but the unfortunate reality of like. Correct me, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's you're sort of. Um, I I think that th- this is actually a frustration because this is a frustration that I feel, and I think. I think Karina, you'll be able to relate to this too, of like being in a space where you're in conversations about international law, about conflicts, about politics, about international politics, like struggles for liberation. I talk about that stuff daily with people who are also talking about that stuff because I don't know, their brains have rotted. Um, But like, it's really frustrating because there is a lot to discuss in um, about the, you know, struggle for Armenian and Artsakh liberation that, can tell you a lot about these issues. And unfortunately, anytime I want to have a conversation about it, I first have to launch into a 20 minute at minimum. Like that's like the, that's like my tight 20. Like I, I have to launch into that explanation of what the hell is going on, what, you know, the basic actors are. Because as I mentioned in our podcast, if you Googled it, you really would have like, and somebody wrote this on um, civil net in Armenia as well. If you Googled the context, the, the conflict, you would have a hard time finding out what the fuck even happened just because mm. the reporting is so piss poor. Um, and and because the reporting is so like riddled with both sides, you 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 would have you would struggle to find out who even attacked or who started a war or like at, like at its basic level, who are even the actors involved? It'd be impossible. Um, so it's really hard to explain this conflict. And having conversations about it is even more difficult because you first have to launch into this explanation where you feel really fucking, you know like bizarre because you're both advocating and explaining and like trying to be honest and also seem unbiased which is impossible because (laughs) you're like talking about the the existence of your people and also you know like you know what's going on and then you know that what actually sounds unbiased is not the truth and so you're just like you're stuck in this like hell for 20 minutes and then you say it and people kind of nod and go yeah and then you move on and it's the worst um, but I think that's like, that's the, that's the setup of what happens when we want to have a deeper conversation about this. And now I'm going to like, I actually explain what the hell is going on because we still haven't done that. I think I was just talking to a journalist who is covering the conflict and he was telling me, look, for me, the conflict begins with the war in 2020, 
Because if I start going back into the history of who occupied this land, who committed atrocities against whom, you just kind of, you get into the realm of historians and that's kind of, he was just saying like, that's just not my job, which is fair. Um, And it's also difficult to kind of explain all that because, you know, the person's eyes just glaze over. People just need a simple kind of good guy, bad guy um, that Ukraine has actually been really, really successful in creating in people's minds, right? This like David and Goliath. This is much more complex. And I think it turns people off from really getting into the weeds and, Part of it, as Anna mentioned, is the awful reporting in the mainstream media about the conflict and this kind of artificial both sidesing and kind of trying to maintain neutrality. But in terms of, you know, maintaining in trying to maintain neutrality, they actually end up not telling the truth because if they mention something negative about one side, they really try to find another negative thing on the other side just so they look kind of neutral and balanced. Yeah. When that that thing may not be urgent, right? Um, or like because bad things happen. Or power. Huh? Or it might not be comparable in scale or power, which is something you talk about a lot right now, where it's like, there, you know, you can find horrifying things on every side of a conflict, um, but the power scale and like what supports them, is there a state structure supporting that horror? Um, that's something that gets obscured all of the time. The asymmetry of the war is completely obscured with this reporting because I don't think, you know, a lot of people are still mentally living in the 1990s when Armenia and Azerbaijan were relatively equal in terms of power and size. And that's just, you know, just not the case anymore. Azerbaijan is a petro dictatorship. They have a huge army. They're backed by Turkey, which is a NATO power. They have NATO grade weapons. Um, and Armenia has Russia as its security guarantor and it's, you know, completely MIA. And just to give you an example, um, some of the reporters that I know have been talking to both Azerbaijani officials and Armenian officials on the ground around the blockade currently happening. And they were both kind of saying, yeah, you know, we had these issues and we tried to reach the the general of the, the peacekeeping mission. The Russian, his name is like Volkov something. And like no, neither side could actually contact him. They didn't know where he was. Like he just wasn't picking up the phone. So literally MIA, you know what I mean? And I think... One of the things that I noticed um, when the 2020 war was still going on and after, in the aftermath, um, and the aftermath, I have to say, just kind of very briefly, was in, in many ways almost more traumatic than the, than the war itself because, I mean, for Armenians in, in, in any case, because, you know, we lost. And then we were subjected to the steady stream of kind of, you know, torture porn, war porn, yeah. um, you know, videos of Azerbaijani servicemen kind of torturing, mutilating, executing Armenian civilians and POWs. And I remember at the time, I was just kind of on Twitter thinking, oh my God, only Armenians are talking about this. Like literally no one cares. No one else is saying anything. And what was worse was that a lot of the journalists who focus on the region, so they're based in the region or um, work for outlets that, you know, specifically cover the region, um, and analysts as well were kind of condescendingly talking down to Armenians, saying things, I mean, essentially saying you're overreacting, you're being really emotional. And it was in that moment that I realized, for example, my word, um, even as someone with a PhD in expertise in the region, working on political science and politics and security in the region was somehow undervalued or devalued to the point where my analysis was worth less than this old white British journalist, really like travel writer, right? Thomas DeWall, I'll name him. Um, 
who doesn't even have a master's degree. I mean, he has his, his undergrad was in um, Greek, like ancient Greek. And yeah, close enough, close enough, enough, right? And it was just really interesting because a lot of the Armenian scholars online were kind of giving these really fact-based um, kind of de- you know debunks of of his points, kind of saying, "Well, this isn't true because here's evidence," you know. And these people were treated as like just these emotional Armenians. You're so tribal and incapable of objectivity because you have this emotional connection to the conflict and. It reminded me of this book, and you know, I, I absolutely recommend this to your listeners. Um, it's called *The Politics of Exile*, written by a scholar named Elizabeth Dauphiné, who is a scholar of the Bosnian War, and it's an autoethnography, which is a, an amazing genre in, in and of itself. I mean, it's written like a novel, but it's in, it's a scholarly work, and in mm. it, she describes giving a talk about the Bosnian war and being challenged by a Bosnian man in the audience who was there for everything. And it's just, you know, the story develops around their, their budding relationship, their friendship. And um, it kind of invites the reader to question whether you can look at something like conflict, war, death, in an objective way, whether objective ob- objectivity is even possible, let alone, you know, this idea that objectivity is even a thing that exists as if, you know, this British man's world desire and whole life hasn't, you know, <laughs> impacted how we see this conflict. Um, obviously not. But I think a lot of things for me personally kind of fell into place. I was like, oh, okay. Okay. So this is, this is what my voice is worth. Right. And also, I just wanted to go back and say it's not because I have a PhD that I'm like, you know, my voice is somehow more valuable than someone else's. But it, I think it means something. And it means, you know, the fact that I've worked on the region and I'm here, I think, does count for something. Um, but it was also, really this inherent racism. Facts. Huh? Well, so you were talking about facts, right? Like, that was what was crazy is that you would bring up facts and you would get responses to your emotions, which, like, hadn't even really entered the conversation at that point until somebody was like, you're being emotional. You're like, okay, but what about the litany of, you know, fact-based information that I just gave you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we we wrote, a, so this Tom Duvall wrote, um, this is just to give you an example of the sort of general attitude. He'd written this article in Carnegie about after um, the U.S. government recognized the Armenian genocide. And in this article, he basically says things like, Armenians wear genocide like a badge of honor, which was obviously, like, amazing. He, he retracted that, that bit. But there, this, other, this, this article was filled with other factual inaccuracies and misrepresentations. And a group of scholars, including myself, wrote a letter to Carnegie kind of asking for the chance for a rebuttal. And the head of the section that Tom Duvall works for, this woman named Rosa Balfour, um, responded to us. She decided to double down, defend him. But her the opening of her email was just so illustrative. She said, I know this is an emotional topic, and which is why I thank you for approaching me in a civilized manner. Yeah, I, I've been I've been on the receiving end of that a lot of times. Yeah, like like you're a group of savages approaching her, and she's like, "Wow, thank you for for being so civil." Yeah, it's so nice of you. <laughs> yeah, I, this was, is yeah. Mm, so this this story is public, and I'll mention it also as an example, and then I'll make my point. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when I was still at the University of Edinburgh, uh, like three three years ago, no, four years ago now, sorry, twenty twenty three. 
I I had this interaction with a pretty notorious conspiracy theorist called Tim Hayward, who has kind of been in the news a bunch of time when it comes to Syria, because he, he was a professor there at the university, and I think still is. And um, he ended up reporting me to the department because I called him a fraud on Twitter, uh, which he is, I'm repeating it. But then he, uh, he, so because of that, so I went to the head of my department who didn't know anything of what was going on. And the guy himself was like nice. He didn't say anything bad to me personally, but it was very clear that from, from that interaction that the actual content of what was happening just did not matter. It didn't matter what kind of impact he was having, what kind of damages he was doing, you know, all of that stuff. The disinformation that was uh, either directly sponsored or, you know, indirectly sponsored by, by the Russian state, which now probably is a bit more well-known. Although even then, I mean, it was after Brexit and after Trump, so it was kind of in the news, but lots of folks did not want to really think about it, but that's a different thing. So because of that, I... it. It kind of brought home, and like long, long story short, I did this uh, episode with Asr Khattab, um, Syrian um, journalist in, in France, uh, currently an exile in France. Uh, I'm going to say last year, although it could be two years ago, but what is time really? <laughs> and he <laughs> and he had written this piece for New Lines called uh, Why I No Longer Write About Syria or Why I'm Going to Stop, something like that. And so we talked about that as well. And he had an episode on, on their podcast as well, which was pretty good. So we talked about that, and shortly after the conversation, actually, I had kind of made a decision to effectively join that uh, sentiment when it comes to Lebanon. Now, it doesn't mean that I stopped writing about Lebanon, but it's more that, and Syria for that matter, because I, I used to write, still do, but much more, write about Syria quite a lot. But I wanted to kind of take a break and get a, try and get a sense of what actual impact can I have. Because a lot of the time I was, if, if I was being talked to at all, it was kind of just for like, you know, a quote here and there, but that's often or not, yeah, often uh, presented in, in a piece that's kind of like, again, both sided, you know, both sidedism, right? And when it comes to Syria, when it comes to Lebanon, I can sort of understand because there's lots of different actors and whatnot. When it comes to Syria, there is a state and there is a non-state. Now, not, I'm talking not about the north, but for, the, for, the, for, most of the, for most of Syria's recent history since the Arab Spring, the overwhelming majority of the atrocities were committed by the Assad regime, and that's just a documented fact. And so if you kind of ignore that fact, you don't want to think about that fact, it's much easier to kind of focus on specific rebel groups and, you know, jihadi mm -hmm. extremists and whatnot, and basically say that this is, this is the other side. You know, you have the Assadists on one side, we don't really like them, but hey, we can talk to them and he speaks English. And you have the, the, other, uh, the other side that are kind of, they have funky beards, kind of like mine, and, you know, that sort of thing. And we don't want, we, we cannot take them seriously, obviously. And fuck it, I don't care about them. They're not nice people. But the, 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 what you mentioned before, the disproportion in power, that's one of the things that even irritates me. And, you know, Israel-Palestine is even more um, mm -hmm. pronounced often on that when it comes to the West anyway, that the, the, the term conflict often kind of simplifies things. I understand that literally it is accurate, like in the sense of how you're describing something, this is a conflict, Israel-Palestine. But it kind of sort of implies that, for example, the Palestinians have an army, a navy, a, an airport, <laughs> basic stuff to kind of fight back, let's say, or to, to whatnot. And obviously, that's not the case. So when if you, if you ignore that, it kind of becomes, okay, I'm going to give a very ridiculous example, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop my point. But it reminds me, there's an episode of Gilmore Girls, and yes, I went there. <laughs> yes! Where, <laughs> Oh, I'm so happy you said that. <laughs> I need to get out of here. But <laughs> oh, God. Okay, please. There's, an, 
No, it's okay, it's okay. There's an episode of Gilmore Girls where you, they're, they're at university. So there's uh, Rory and, and Paris, uh, her friend. And at, they're in the class on Middle East something. I don't know what the fuck they were talking about, but they Gosh. weren't there. And they were talking about Israel-Palestine. I remember and this so clearly. <laughs> people can look it up. It's on YouTube. Just got Gilmore Girls, Israel-Palestine. <laughs> but so the, the arguments were... Um, I think I'd for, I think Rory is the one who made the quote-unquote nuanced argument. I don't remember what it was, which was still trash, but <laughs> it was something like, um, let me remember. It was something like, uh, you know, there are different reasons and whatever. She was trying to be nuanced. And then the other person, uh, Paris in this case, said, actually, it's much simpler. You have the, the Jews are descendant of whatever, and the Arabs are descendant of whatever, and they've been t- fighting for thousands of years or whatever it is that she said. And what's amazing is that the professor, again, a fancy Yale professor, whatever, says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> like, there's no, there was no, like, basically that entire, ass, that entire word and something I got very used to, obviously, watching, especially American TV or British TV or whatnot, that they don't, like, we don't really exist. Like, you know, it's not, we're not, there aren't real people there. You know, it's just, it's just headlines. It's just kind of, again, those cute corners on the map. A very simplistic ancestries, you know, oh, for thousands of years, the Arabs and the Jews have been fighting. No, they have, you know, all of that stuff. I found <laughs> the quote. that, but like, it's everywhere. Yeah, go for <laughs> it, go so for it. I found the quote. Paris says, when you boil it down, isn't the whole Israeli-Palestinian problem a case of sibling rivalry? And the professor just goes, follow up? And she says, the Old Testament, it's all there. Israelis are descendants of Abraham and Sarah. Arabs are descendants of Abraham and his maid Hagar. So Israelis and Arabs both are the same dad and both want the great nation God promised Abraham. They might as well be fighting over who gets the TV remote. Oh my god! Oh my god! It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so good. But it's also yes. Sorry, I'm so glad you said that though because I I actually think it really matters how like Israel Palestine happens to have entered like the public lexicon in this way, and so you get to really see like what is mm-hmm. like what is because people casually reference it so you can it's in the casual references that you get to see like what is really like what's the essence of what people are boiling yeah because they don't have you in mind right they're not talking to you and so because they're not talking to you and this is the whole james baldwin thing that i always steal like because they're not talking to you you are actually you can pay more attention to what's what they're saying than their audience or for that matter them for what they are actually saying you can because they're not talking to you so they're not bothering to contextualize or to be sensitive or to hide what they're saying or whatnot they're just saying it yeah and so yeah that's very interesting and it's everywhere in pop culture it's everywhere i do cultural studies so it's something i i i watch tv and i say that i study basically that's what i do but <laughs> it's, some, my, it's like something that yeah, it's watching more girls. <laughs> <laughs> this is for science uh, honestly no but like it yeah that's very because i the thing is like about armenians it's what's kind of difficult is that armenians never we very rarely enter the public conversation and so this is like a really uh, dehumanizing effort where like as Armenians, you're constantly fighting to enter the public conversation. You're constantly fighting to like get that like, you know, abstracted cultural reference. And then um, and then you do enter the cultural conversation on occasion. And you're like, or oh, it's like some yeah, mafia boss shit. Like, yeah, like, Armenians. Also, like I really I also have a bone to pick with. This is a whole other thing. But like there I have recently seen like some representations of Armenians on television and they're all really fucked up. Like they're I'm, I'm always just like it's all mafia shit, right? Like, it's either mafia shit or it's like really um frankly offensive like portrayals of Armenians in LA. Oh, and like 
Listen, we get to make fun of our diasporas. Yeah. You don't get to make yeah. fun of our diasporas. <laughs> like we no. But like that's also like I I, I joke, but also like it, they're bizarre. Like they're truly like I, I imagine like if you did this to any other group now, like even other like even like other like white coated groups, I'm like it would just be bizarre. Like it's just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um yes, it, it is it, like you, you do see like this like reduction of like the conversation and like what's appropriate and what isn't. Um and I was I was just thinking, so right now We'd be kind of remiss not to mention this, but the um, there's like a group of Azerbaijani eco-activists, eco-fascists, eco-nothing. I don't know or care what they are. They've blocked the only road leading from uh, Armenia mm-hmm. to the Republic of Artsakh. And these, this blockade is entering. It's, I, I really am bad at math, it's the 37th or 38th day, depending on if you include. What, what, it's, it's entering like over a month now. Um, and today is January 18th for the record. Yeah. So, oh yes, that's a good point. Right now, it's entering its thirty eighth. It's thirty eighth day, but uh, depending on when this episode comes out, um, hopefully it'll be over. But that's not necessarily that's that's not necessarily something that can realistically be hoped for. Um, mm-hmm. And so, what that what that means is right now they're rationing food in the Republic of Artsakh, and I think this has interestingly enough forced coverage to become a little bit more um, honest. Like I see coverage because it's really hard to. Uh, it's really hard to you, you, you can't you can't both sides this know who's, yeah like you can't be like i don't really know who's blocking the road like which i swear to god i thought they were gonna do um okay, but it fits in the whole like humanitarian you've been denying that the road discourse. is blocked by the way yeah. you know that right they're they, they show yes, the yeah. two red cross cars that go through and they're like see which is like really interesting because it's like yeah like there's this it's so bizarre because there's like this like like, there are Red Cross cars going through. Anywhere else where you have the Red Cross with their freaking flag flying, like, please don't shoot us, we're the Red Cross, like, driving through, you'd be like, oh, that's a humanitarian crisis. And they're, like, calling this as a blockade as a joke. And I'm like, all right, like, I I don't know what to tell you. If, if someone's airlifting supplies in or, like, driving supplies in because you can't simply get them by the normal routes of trade, that's, that's, that's a blockade, um, especially since, like, it's, you know, limited supplies and things like that. And actually... Um, I think it was just yesterday that I, Karina, you might, you're probably going to want to comment on this, but just yesterday, a group of children that was separate, sorry, that was separated from their parents. They were in the, they were in Armenia. Um, and when the blockade came down, I guess, and they were separated from their families and they had been separated for this entire time. Yesterday, they were returned to the Republic of Artsakh and reunited with their families with the, you know, with, with the help of humanitarian intervention. Um, but even in the process of returning those children to the Republic of Artsakh, um, they were like ter- the bus that was driving them from Armenia to Artsakh was boarded by, I think, masked Azerbaijani agents, people, agents. I don't like, I like, I don't know if they're working it's not for someone whether else they were or the eco activists in quotations or yeah, they're I don't know if it's motivated people. by personal vitriol or professional vitriol. I don't really care. Um, but they boarded this bus and one student fainted. Like they were just like terrorizing these kids. Um, and I, like I'm giving these illustrations it mainly to like describe that like so the reason I say this is because I was looking up articles to kind of like see what the news coverage about it was like. And even still, like, even as you're describing a blockade, food, like, there's no food in the supermarkets right now. They're rationing pasta and sugar. Um, even, even with that happening, 
you had Thomas Duvall saying something like, well, you know, both sides have definitely been the aggressor in the past. Now, for sure, Azerbaijan is the aggressor. This is what had to happen for a Azerbaijan to be named as the aggressor. And yet still, like, there's this like both sides have been like, I, I can't at this point can't really imagine that being said in these same media sources about, you know, like Ukraine, for example, um, because in a conflict, yeah, they're like people fight back. Um, but it's this like it, it's it's again that story of like how the words of like really particular non uh, non stakeholders have become very like have had outsized importance. Um, and and very strange they were on the ground, yeah. not on the ground, but because they were some of the first Western analysts to look yeah. at the region, they just hold this kind of unassailable position as the authority on the conflict, even though he hasn't been here in years, he doesn't speak any local languages aside from Russian. Um, Which is a stretch to call that a local language. uh, Frankly, in the modern era, it's really a stretch to call that a local language in Armenia. Anna, did I tell you I met those kids? You did. I wasn't sure if you wanted to share that, but... um, I did, and I recognized a couple of them in the video. Yeah. Um... So just for your listeners, Joey, these these kids, they were f- from the ages of 13, 14 to 17, 18. They were young musicians from Arsakh who had traveled as a group to Armenia with a chaperone to watch or attend the Junior Eurovision, which was in December. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they were trying to go back, the road was closed. It was blockaded and they've been stuck in Armenia ever since. And they were staying at, at a hotel where I was staying and I'd gone down to the restaurant to have dinner and um, the woman working there said, you know, can I take this extra chair? And I was like, sure. And she says, you know, it's for the kids. And I was like, what kids? And she said, oh, the kids from Artsakh. And I just kind of like looked over and I saw them. And I was like, oh, my God, it just slowly dawned on me, like who they were, because I'd heard of them. Mm. Um, and in the evenings, they were just getting together in the lobby and just playing their instruments. They were singing, just, you know, hanging out on their phones, just, you know, no structure to their day, just kind of. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really sad seeing them. But, you know, I think, mm. I don't know, for what it's worth, I don't know, I don't want to be a kind of simplifying what's happening here, but it seems like maybe this is helpful for your listeners as well, Joey, that Azerbaijan kind of wants to create a sort of Gaza situation with this siege and kind mm-hmm. of keeping these people under pressure like this long term. Yeah. I was, I was yeah. talking to a friend who was recently in Palestine, um, she brought back this awesome kefir. Um, it's in the shot, um, but she um, she was like visiting her family's home in Palestine, and she was saying how Israeli soldiers were going around making them take down all the Palestinian flags. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And she was like, you know, this time it's because it was Hanukkah or for some other like fucking reason that they were coming up with. Um, and she felt like you know it, it felt humiliating to her. And I was just thinking, you know. This is very familiar because that's what Azerbaijanis would do to vehicles traveling through Artsakh. They would make them take down the Artsakh flags. They would scratch them off of cars. And it's that like, and what the reason I mentioned like the children kind of being harassed as they were entering, you know, their homes is this was a humanitarian effort. It really would have been absolutely zero loss to Azerbaijan to just let it happen. In fact, it probably would have helped them with PR. Um, and yet I think the goal of there's like one one way to look at it, which is to say they just hate us so much that they had to like, you know, they had to take this opportunity to terrorize those kids, which is entirely possible. But I think there's also another like a little bit more um, a different explanation, which is that the priority is actually not on the outer world. The outer world has sort of made its 
opinion heard, the priority is on internal terror. It is on internal humiliation because that's what kind of keeps yeah. people, makes people leave. Um, and that's like, that, that, that is enough of a priority that it's worth whatever, you know, whatever results come out from that. Like whatever news story comes out from that about you terrorizing these children, about, you know, you treating them this way during a humanitarian effort to like reunite them with their families in the middle of a blockade. So it's not even like, it's not, they're not being airlifted out of Artsakh. They're being, air, or like mm. they're, I keep saying airlifted. They're not being airlifted at all. They're not being like transported into, out, in, out of the danger zone. They want to get back with their families who are in the danger zone. Um, and still like, I think the priority is on that kind of like terror and humiliation, um, which gets obscured with pretty much all the coverage of this, even as like you see, you know, even as you see slightly better um slightly better reporting coming out of it mm-hmm. so that's what's mm-hmm. going on in, in Artsakh right now which is also why like it, it's it, it's it's weird to come here and have this conversation about like diaspora and identity about um what all of this means when like again we're like you're ha- you're trying to unpack all of this stuff while also uh like advocating for the sort of very the sort of very real and immediate issue um and it's it's but you you can't not do it. You have to unpack all mm-hmm. that shit because it's the stuff that's impeding you from being able to advocate properly for the very real issue. Um, mm. So I don't know. That's like that's where we're stuck. Yeah, I mean one one stupid thought I had one while you were talking is like, wow, this is gonna be complicated to pick up a title for this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not one thing. Uh, <laughs> that is why I only choose stupid titles for our. <laughs> <laughs> Every but time yeah, I say yeah, that, I mean, it's just be like Armenians, colon, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, like the, the, what you mentioned, like for me, uh, the, the, yeah, I was going to say like cruelty is sometimes the point. At least it's part of the arsenal being used. It's not like a side effect. It's just like rogue. There is, there is this tendency, I think, due to the quote unquote objectivity aim of a lot of, sorry, a lot of reporting, a lot of even academia on this, that if you say something very straightforward, uh, like uh, they did this and we know they did this because it was literally filmed and they said they did this, for Mm -hmm. example, then this, you know, you risk becoming quote unquote biased or whatnot, which for one, it implies that people are not biased in general it implies that there is such a thing as neutrality like you know Karina you mentioned like you know I understand that that person who said I understand this is an emotional time for you and whatnot and sometimes the response in my mind is that why is this not an emotional time for you you know it's that kind of thing because at the end of the day this is what I meant uh, beginning uh, at the time that yes of course with Ukraine I, uh, not with Ukraine but with a lot of the western response towards the, the Russian invasion to Ukraine there, there is quite a lot to, to critique and criticize there but part of me was also just kind of wondering whether this whole privileged status and I'm putting this in quotation because you know a refugee is not privileged and by definition but the sense of like being paid more attention to let's say um, I, I kind of wondered from the beginning whether this was going to be a long-lasting thing anyway, because it's not that long ago where, and, and it's still ongoing, you mentioned the caricature of the Armenian Mafia and whatever. Like in, mm-hmm. in Britain, you know, for example, in the UK, uh, the, in, in the run-up to Brexit and after Brexit, like, uh, they were obsessed even more so with, like, Poles and Romanians and whatnot than they were, you know, with, with us, <laughs> with my people, you know? They were more, they were more like, um, obsessed with that, they would talk about it much more. Like so, for me, this is where it kind of all boils boils down to. In in some senses, that there is a tendency, which is still common, 
And okay, I'll give you a quick example that when the, the recent violence, uptick in violence, and that's always complicated to mention the language uh, in really the context of Israel-Palestine, um, is, you know, I think last year, um, we, we, I mean, lots of folks, Palestinians, others, were kind of surprised, uh, pleasantly so, to some extent, that Palestinians were being platformed <laughs> in, in uh, like, Palestinians were actually being talked to in, like, on CNN and stuff like that, and... Uh, this is you know 70 plus years at this point and it's it's so uncommon that this this was genuinely part of the topic of conversation like the times are changing and whatnot and sure uh, maybe they are or whatever that means but of course there is the question of like why did it take so long and what does it say about about the coverage itself if the the fundamental framework was never was about conflict quote unquote mm-hmm. then this is you know you're going to assume that there are both sides and obviously israelis are more used to Israeli government agents, especially or officials or journalists or whatever, are more used to speaking to Westerners than Palestinians are, or more more heard in any case. You know, there is all of there there are all of these elements. And that's why like I was joking about Gilmore Girls or whatever, but these things really enter the discourse the way people consume them um when i would watch some of these series with like a bunch of friends i would be the annoying one pointing out how problematic this is. But like it's it's it becomes We're so like you have to <laughs> Uh, I have a, I have a signal group called Party Poopers United. Just <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Please continue. No, no, no. But because of that, uh, because of all of that, like it, it's very difficult for me to explain this positionality. To use that dreaded word again, of how my experience growing up in Lebanon really differed from, let's say, if a person who grew up in France or whatnot. And mm-hmm. on some level, that's normal, right? You grow up in different places, you have different experiences. But what's kind of obviously specific about the context of Lebanon, and since the Arab Spring, the the, the region more broadly, I um, mean, since 2003, arguably the region more, more broadly, is that we have already been talked about uh, a lot mm-hmm. in the sense that in the media, in movies, in series, in all of that stuff. And for me, it's kind of bizarre. It was a bizarre experience. Like I do cinema studies, so I would watch a lot of these films um, that portray Lebanon, uh, sometimes made by Lebanese, but often not. And I have no idea where this place is. I don't know. I don't recognize anything. You know, there's nothing. And I'm not even talking stuff, oh, this is set in the 80s during the war. No, no, recent stuff. Like, just, there, there was, uh, what was it? Homeland, I think. I don't remember which one of those American TV series. Oh, those are always the biggest they, offenders. Yeah. Yes. But they were filming supposedly Beirut and it was actually Haifa. And there were like Hebrew signs. You know, it was supposed to be contemporary. It's like, just stuff like that. You know, it's, it's, it, it gets taken for granted a lot how, wrong um, basic uh, how easy it is to just include basic facts and what it says when you really don't feel like you have any need to because Mm -hmm. your audience you know Mm -hmm. don't know about it anyway or you assume they don't know about it and in any case your audience are not the peoples you're talking about right so these things are very embedded in how and how in how discourse is often um yeah how discourse often happens and it percolates, right? Like it's embedded in everything from cultural study, uh, from the media to, to as in news media, to cinema, movies, books, whatnot, and obviously to politics. It was a bizarre experience growing up in Lebanon and kind of consuming a lot of uh, Western media. Like that's basically how I learned English and then it became my working language and all of that stuff. You know, it's a non-uncommon story in a lot of circles, but not completely connecting the dots, you know, for a long time between what they were talking about, when they were talking about, quote unquote, us, 
and uh, in who the audience was and whatnot. Like, there was a disconnect. And this, James Bolden talks about it. And obviously, in the case of African Americans, it's, it's a, I think, arguably a much more violent and ongoing thing in which uh, he has this example where he would watch a movie when he was a young kid and he didn't know that he was supposed to be the black person in that movie. He didn't have a, a knowledge of himself, an awareness of himself as the black person, right, quote-unquote. And obviously the N-word at the time as well. So he didn't have that that conception of himself and it was given to him, you know, it was imposed on him in many ways and he had to adapt, he had to, in some sense, he integrated it, he... He internalized it, and then there's the entire process of yeah. deconstructing all of that, which you know he talks about quite eloquently. And in my case, like there w- there's been kind of a similar trajectory, in which I I can't now it sounds bizarre when I say it out loud, but growing up I didn't quite even associate myself uh, with let's say the Muslim or the Muslim Arabs who were on TV because we grew up Lebanese Christians in a middle class household in Lebanon and I didn't quite know that they you know they didn't the people who were having these portrayals didn't know what the nuanced differences between the different groups of Arabs or whatnot were anyway and of course we can think of the example post 9-11 of like Sikhs being attacked in Canada or the US and stuff like that right because it's racialized and when it's racialized it's obviously not uh, you know doesn't it's not quote-unquote logical but so it's it's been a bizarre experience i i I, gi- I give this example a number of times that i genuinely did not know that muslims use the word allah like, i just did not know this because everyone in my area when i was growing up was a christian and allah is just the arabic word for god and so we would say allah and we meant jesus <laughs> and so this was this was the it was a very very weird out-of-body experience that's how that's how i can describe it and it took some time, like I'm 31 now, it took some time to kind of understand that there is a person who is me, like there is my experience and there is all of those caricatures, right? There's all of those ideas and whatnot. And actually understanding those uh, stereotypes, cliches, uh, racist portrayals, uh, assumptions, all of that stuff can be empowering because in some sense I'm, I'm now... I know how to navigate it in some ways in a way that doesn't necessarily just harm me, if that makes sense. I always reject it. I don't, when I say navigating, I don't mean I accept it. But it says I know what's coming. And because if I know what's coming, I'm able to sort of adapt accordingly. And so this, um, rather awkwardly, uh, I wanted to seg- segue to, uh, we, we did warn listeners at the beginning that we have too many things to talk about. So <laughs> that that's, honestly, if you're still listening, that's on you. <laughs> this is your problem. This is your problem. Like uh, that's not my problem. <laughs> but uh, the the idea of um, whiteness, quote unquote, and usually we mean that in the context of the U.S. I have some insights in in the context of France as well when it comes to Lebanon and Lebanese Christians specifically. But let's let's focus on what we sort of know because I I don't want it's not going to be an entire like an America thing or talking specifically only. Uh, about like U.S. race relations for lack of a better term or whatever. But I'm very interested in this idea because. Obviously, now I think it's becoming more and more known that the idea of whiteness, the idea of race, those are social constructs. But it's still taken for granted, obviously, in many circles, if not most circles. And so it surprises people when I when they find out, for example, that, yeah, actually, historically, and in many ways to this day, Arab Americans were uh, cat- uh, you know, categorized as white. Because mm-hmm. this goes back to uh, a case, yep. an infamous case that people can look up like a hundred something years ago uh, of a Syrian man, I believe, I don't remember who was, who won, or a Christian, Syrian Christian who wanted to argue that he was white because of whatever. So because 
this obviously continued uh, to this day and whatnot. And while in in media portrayal and politics, obviously uh, the average Arab American is still stigmatized and whatnot, but there is this very complicated history that, for example, if you don't know it, you may not quite understand why there are like Lebanese Christian Americans, especially uh, this was especially the case after 9/11, after the, the the invasion of Iraq in 2003, who were uh, positioning themselves as far right, basically. You know, they they were to use that example we mentioned, I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, they were the ones who were kind of being the useful other to the racists and to the white supremacists and to the Islamophobes because they would say, yeah, I mean, you hate Muslims. I'm from Lebanon. They killed us all, you know, that sort of thing. And this becomes very um, complicated, obviously, uh, when you then um, broaden the conversation and you want to start including all of the diasporas and all of the experiences and all of that stuff and the different things that can be said, but maybe the person who's saying them doesn't have the same intention or doesn't mean it in the same way, you know, all of that stuff. So can we talk a bit, uh, you know, to the extent that we, f- we feel it's useful to the, the overall thread of this conversation already, talk about how these social constructs have affected maybe your lives or lives of folks that you know, and what's, what, what has sort of been your journey or your process to untangle that, that very fun mess? Uh, for me specifically, because I'm also from Iran, my family's from Iran, I had to deal with um, like very specific anti-Iranian sentiment, especially after the hostage crisis in 79 mm-hmm. or whenever it was. So growing up, I, mm-hmm. I felt stigmatized for that reason. And I think for that reason, a lot of Americans, at least in Southern California, where I grew up, saw Armenians as Middle Eastern because a lot of us at the time were new immigrants from Iran, from Lebanon um, specifically. And then, mm-hmm. you know, later waves came from Armenia and it kind of changed the idea. So I did grow up. Um, and I think, you know, there's something to be said about being a visible minority. Um, there's We're big enough in numbers in Southern California where people kind of know who we are, but that's kind of a negative. There's like a negative association around us. Mm-hmm. Whereas in France, for example, that's not the case. It's quite positive. Um, but then, you know, when I was living in the UK, people kind of didn't know who Armenians were. And they were like, oh, you're Romanian, you know, kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I think one of the weird, situ- I, I mean, it's, I don't know if this is like directly related to what you're saying, but my brain kind of went in this direction. There have been mm-hmm. so many instances on Twitter. I don't know if either of you have ever seen it, but with people kind of starting these really fraught conversations on Twitter, very one-sided about whether Armenians are white or not. And they always hold up Kim Kardashian as the example and kind of show her like white mom and like how anti-black she's been. And it just kind of broad strokes, like paint all Armenians as like, you know, they're not POC kind of thing. Um, and just kind of telling us who we are and like speaking over our, experience, our experiences, which are n- nuanced. I'm not going to say mm-hmm. we're POC mm-hmm. and that's it. Um, it's, it's much more complicated mm-hmm. than that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't understand. Maybe Anna can speak a little bit to this. Like, I just fucking don't understand these conversations. Every time I see a new one, I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm just going to shut this down. I'm going to, like, close my laptop. I'm going to go touch grass because this isn't healthy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, this might be the reason. I mean, it's not, but, like, it is the reason I stopped using Twitter. <laughs> it's just, like, I hate this. Um, yeah, I... It's... We really picked, like... These all 
we really picked a number of things to address today, didn't we? Um, Welcome to the fire these times. <laughs> I know, truly. Like <laughs> now, I get the title. Yeah, I, 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 I feel personally burned. I feel like I am being attacked. Um, this is hell. No, I'm not. Kidding. I'm kidding, Joe. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, um, I know. I know. No worries. Um, well, it's also because these are fraught conversations within the Armenian community. So sometimes I think, mm-hmm. like, I could, I couldn't give it, like, I could give less of a shit what, like. Uh, you know, a bunch of Americans and white people probably would have to say about what I say here, but like it matters to me what are uh, how you know respected Armenians and di- like dignified they feel about the the ways in which like we we talk about each other. So, anyways, but um, here goes nothing. Um, so the case that you were talking about was Dow versus the United States. That was the case yeah. of a Syrian immigrant um who wanted to basically be able to be naturalized as um. And in order to be naturalized, he had to be classed as a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was given the right to be classed as a white person. I wish I had read this case beforehand because um, I would be able to tell you a little bit about the um, about the reasoning of that case. Uh, because There's the reason- a very good episode of the, the Ottoman History podcast. I'll try and find it that yeah. talks about that uh, specific thing. But yeah. Well, so the there's a series of these cases, right? So there's one for Armenians too, which is the United States versus Cartosian, um, and that was um, a, a district court case in Oregon. There was also another one in Massachusetts. I can't remember the exact name of it. Um, and all of these cases sort of gave Syrians and Armenians the ability to be classed as white. And I think we have to remember that the reason that being classed as white matters is because this was um, like during the era of Jim Crow. It was sort mm-hmm. of like at the like beginning to middle of like the Jim Crow era, I would say it was, you know, when Jim Crow was like, like lynchings were extremely common of mm-hmm. uh, black people across the United States. Um, the KKK was, yeah, I mean, at- it, w- it was literally a matter of survival to be mm-hmm. classed as white in some cases. Like you, you yes. would, you would want to be classed as that so that someone doesn't knock mm-hmm. at your door. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that because I mm-hmm. would, I would say that, um, Jim Crow was always targeting black people and like, yeah. uh, black people as, seen and perceived by white people in the United States. Um, and so I don't think anybody was going to, I don't, I like, I don't, I'm not going to like bury myself with a statement because I'm sure there are instances that you can find, but you know, finding a cross burning in front of your house is really a black experience. Mm-hmm. Um, being targeted by the KKK, experiencing lynchings is a black experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that it's never happened to anybody else before somebody fucking like whatever, but that it like it, it, divorcing that. Yeah, that's from, fair enough. Yeah. 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 It's for blackness in the United States. Isn't fair. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the other thing is housing. So, you know, the, like um, Roosevelt's New, uh, New Deal, um, when it comes to like housing and like the history of redlining in, the, in in various cities across the United States, that was tied to your ability to be classed as white. Being naturalized was a, was tied to your ability to be classed as white. And I want to contrast those two cases to the case of U.S. v. Bhagat Singh Tind, um, who was an Indian Sikh man um, who also wanted to be, uh, classed as white in order f- to be, uh, in, in, in order to attain naturalized citizenship in the United States. He was not given that right. Um, cause, and he, his argument was also interesting because he argued that he was Aryan, basically using elements of the Aryan invasion theory. Um, mm-hmm. and I want to talk not about like the decisions of those cases because they, well, the decisions tell us a little bit about whiteness as it was conceived too, namely that Christianity started playing a bigger and bigger role in whiteness. And that's, I think mm-hmm. something Armenians have exploited over the, over history as have, you know, mm-hmm. Syrian Christians and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but our arguments also play a role because there's something in common with both, you know, with, with what we all argued, which is that all of these groups argued that we were white. We argued for various reasons, like using various like 
touchstones of whiteness to say that we were white. And I like to talk about that because it's something I think Armenians don't acknowledge among, like we don't acknowledge enough, I feel like, which is that by saying that we're white, by saying that, you know, because we're Christian, we have proximity to whiteness, but got Singh Tin saying that because of the Aryan invasion theory, he's, you know, a member of the Caucasian race. Um, we were validating and uh, participating in Jim Crow. So even those arguments, like, and I understand that, like, it was a matter of survival. It was really trying to, like, it, it was a matter of trying to access basic resources in the United States, um, because when you do something as violent and, and sort of all-encompassing as when you create something, a system like Jim Crow, it will touch everything. And you're, you end up in these weird situations where you have to decide, well, is someone white to get housing? So it's violent. Um, but we were participating in it by arguing not that Jim Crow was wrong, because we... I mean, there's a version, there's a universe in which you see something else. And there's a version, there's a universe in which you see Armenians saying, um, you weaponizing their proximity to whiteness to um, attack Jim Crow instead of validate it. You, you, you like, you can see that his, like, that's a, sorry, that's, that's a version of history that, you know, you can invent in your mind as well, where we see, you know, what we look like, we see our, um, Christianity, whatever. Like we we take those those touchstones of whiteness and we use them to attack whiteness as a concept to attack Jim Crow. That's really not um, systematically where Armenian history and the history of Armenian Americans went. So Armenians get, got access to legalized whiteness. That's not to negate like the experience of like actual whiteness um, because that's not really something that you can gain access to as easily. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of... Uh a very cringe thing that happened during the George Floyd protests. Obviously, there was like this global um, mm -hmm. element to it, right? There were reverberations of it everywhere in the world. And, you know, probably most of it was fine. I, you know, I didn't do an extensive study. But um, there was one in Lebanon. There's a few in Lebanon, actually. One problematic, one uh, not problematic. And the reason why one was problematic is that the banner that they had was Lebanese Lives Matter, right? You know, the whole Black Lives Matter, yeah, Lebanese that, Lives that Matter. Yeah, common, yeah. Yeah, and the, obviously the the very problematic thing about that aspect is that Lebanon has a deeply racialized system under the kafala system, which I've talked about a number of times on this podcast as well. Mm -hmm. And the victims of that system are not quote unquote Lebanese, as as it's uh, as as that sign was trying to to you know the, the people that they, that sign had in mind. Well, you had another protest that sort of uh, I don't I don't know if they used the word Black Lives the term Black Lives Matter, but they were kind of in that spirit, and it was spearheaded by you know. Ethiopian migrant workers and, and other racialized migrant workers in Lebanon, uh, most of them from, from Asia and Africa, that, you know, th they had a resonance with, with, that, um, with that slogan, right, with that principle. And for, for very obvious reasons, they are the ones who are racialized in the Lebanese context. Mm -hmm. And so there, there, are, there are ways in which these, um, and it's sometimes, or often is the case because of the, you know, kind of globalization of the English language and obviously the role of America and pop culture, all of that stuff. It tends to be that like something happens in America and it kind of launches a global impact. That's just kind of the, a, a, um, common uh after effect in some 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 sense but it obviously then you know stuff gets lost in translation and you know not every you know all of that stuff so all of this to say um so i don't get lost in kind of the weeds of this of this um of my own very messy mind right now is that um lebanon and the reason why i sort of I said positionality at the beginning. Lebanon has this very bizarre, and I don't know if that's the right term, but very um, um, unique, although everything is unique, but like for me, a very specific, let's say, 
um, positionality in its own history and as someone who is Lebanese but not just Lebanese but from a quote-unquote Lebanese Christian family from a certain class from a certain area from a certain whatever all of those stuff um, allowed me in a bizarre I'm using that term too many too often sorry and it allowed me to um, have access in some sense to the narrative or the dominant discourses when it came to Islamophobia when it came to racism because in some sense they were often the people who were using those um, discourse the people who were participating in that discourse were using folks like me in mind right like I'm thinking I wrote an article for Al Jazeera on the Meloni phenomenon the far right in Italy and she had I don't know if she still does but she has the noon the N letter on her Twitter profile and that's a reference to the persecution of Christians by ISIS and so for you know from her perspective uh, you know Christians in the Middle East need to just be protected and it's all it's an Islam versus Christianity thing and whatnot which tends to a obviously uh, participate in Islamophobic discourse but also erase the Christians of Iraq of Syria of Lebanon and whatnot who are complicated who have just different politics some are right-wing some are fascist some are lefty some are don't know you know it's it's a complicated situation and when we often when we don't want and I'm saying we when folks don't want to uh, accept the complexity of situation you have all of these uh, consequences that happen that usually affect the people being talked about or you know in, in it, saying it in a different way, the people being erased in, in, in that discourse if that makes sense yeah I was thinking that like those like Christians in the Middle East are also targeted by um, the racialization of Islam mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. um, like the, the the racialization of Muslim identity has like created you know it's it's sort of it, it then becomes geographic um and so policies targeting like th those same policies that far right you know people act um advocate for then end up targeting extremely unfairly also like religious minorities in the middle east which like is just like a byproduct from exactly mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. which is a byproduct of um like stupid decisions it's like a, it's a byproduct of stupid racist decisions um but something that like so like armenian identity only ever comes up on twitter or like anywhere when one of two things happens is what i've noticed is when an armenian has done something super fucking racist and all armenians want to like use our um like want, want to sort of use status as oppression as like a way to def like defer from that or when uh, Armenians are being murdered and people want to use our status, uh, like our proximity to whiteness to ignore that. Yep. Um, both are exhausting. I mm. hate both. <laughs> and I would like to put my head through a wall anytime any, any of them come up. Um, <laughs> but it's like, it, it's very frustrating because like as Armenians, we do occupy a lot of proximity to whiteness and we have weaponized that proximity to whiteness to... Um, almost no benefit to ourselves but we're like we've like desperately clung to it to try and like get attention to armenia um and uh, it hasn't been particularly effective because at the end of the day like they they're not going to care about you because you like you know you really try to become as close to them as possible um I mean, yeah, no, it's uh, just quickly. It's like the, I think he was Syrian Christian American. I don't remember or Iraqi Christian American, but like he was supporting. He voted for Trump and then was kind of shocked that he was on the receiving end of the deportation. You know, like I never saw like this my face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's you know, it's so it's a complicated conversation. But also, why we started this by talking about diaspora because, um, you know, Armenians occupy a certain space in the United States, and that is 
uh, everything in the United States is underpinned by the history of chattel slavery and Jim Crow. So like to sort of give ourselves a status in the United and I, I really I have no I do not have an answer to are we white? Are we POC? I don't fucking care. Like the fact that we fall in and out of those categories should tell you a lot about what whiteness means in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Because we are at the edges of it and our like inclusion and exclusion from them can tell you more about the system than like anything about ourselves because like, you know, whatever. Um, But we occupy proximity to whiteness in the United States. Globally, though, um, you know, like that doesn't what does that fucking do for the Armenians and Artsakh who are living under a blockade right now? Right. Like Mm -hmm. that proximity to whiteness is getting them nowhere. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not helping them in any sense because it's it doesn't exist in that context. Um, because whiteness is different globally than it is in the United States because it's not underpinned by a history of Jim Crow and chattel slavery um, in the same way. And so that's really frustrating because in the U.S. you want to advocate for, like, you know, Armenians as an oppressed group in a very real immediate emergency kind of sense, and you're faced with um, the identity of diaspora Armenians who occupy a very different social and economic status um and also mm-hmm. amongst themselves have very different you know social and economic statuses depending on what part mm-hmm. of the diaspora they're from depending on where they live depending on their economic class so mm-hmm. yeah those things get conflated and it makes it hard because uh it it, it, it leaves out the people most in like the most dire situation which are mm-hmm. armenians in artsakh and to some extent in armenia as well who are facing existential threat and like mm-hmm. need to be seen in that context I just want to quickly add on that. I think, um, Anna, what you were saying about, you know, the Islamophobia, or sorry, I'm going to add the Islamophobia aspect to your most recent point. There was this, a few moments during the 2020 war where I was kind of watching some of my peers, some of whom I know personally, um, analysts, human rights activists, journalists who focus on the region and were completely silent during the war or... If any, if they shared anything, it was like, you know, one very commendable kind of letter written by Azerbaijani peace activists. That was the only thing they shared. Yeah. And I remember, you know, yeah. having this conversation over and over. Some people would ask me, "Why are they not saying anything?" And I, th- I really don't. I still don't have an answer. I still don't know. Um, but my suspicion, I think, was. I think some of them saw us as equal in terms of power, but they didn't want to be seen as Islamophobic by necessarily kind of speaking out against the violence. Mm -hmm. I honestly think that's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons. I mean, I think, you know, the reasoning is quite complex and there's lots of pieces to it, but I think that's one of the major ones. Yeah, 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 I can see that being the case. Well, because there's been also some history of like, because Armenians and Christianity is extremely tied. Like I'm a Christian or like it's, you know, it's like a part of my life, but um, Christianity is quite tied to Armenian identity. And it's also, mm-hmm. like, beyond a religious belief, it's also a cultural marker. So it is targeted mm-hmm. by Azerbaijan and Turkey in trying to erase mm-hmm. Armenianness because, mm-hmm. you know, like that, like, it's a cultural marker. Um, but it's not a religious conflict. And I-, I think that, like, you know, we've advocated based, like, we've advocated around that Christianity before, which has, and certainly, like, Armenians have participated in Islamophobia before. Um, and, like, I think Gadi and I should try really fucking hard to like, that's why we're trying to be very clear with our terms and what we're talking about. Because like, um, like just because it doesn't fit into the Western idea of like, or Western liberal leftist idea of like what is oppression. What, yeah. Mm. Of like who is oppressed and who is not does not like, they, 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 they think of it based on like identity markers when in reality it's like a, this is a, this is a, this is a calculation of power. Exactly. And this is um, another this kind is of exhortation yeah. of, you know, the U S system where, you know, people will actually self-censor or not kind of speak out against, 
you know, literal violence happening right now because they see, oh, you know, if Armenians are Christian, they're probably more privileged, like globally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, but this is also why leftists and like um, uh, liberals in the U.S. really struggle with a uh, caste in India um, mm-hmm. because it's like so beyond their idea of uh, oppression and racial identity. Um, and I mean, this I like this has happened. Uh, th- there have been like as as many more people immigrate from India to the United States. Casteism is also exported and all like well export is a weird way to sorry is also like mm-hmm. it, it comes with that as well because you know people mm-hmm. have access to travel and things like that it's often like upper caste wealthy people um and that's created a lot of I mean a lot of universities now in the US or I wouldn't say a lot some universities in the US now are adopting anti-caste policies um mm-hmm. or anti-caste discrimination policies because it's becoming a real issue that like um lower caste and dalit people are facing when living in the United States and the di- the thing is uh the you know the uh oppressor's argument becomes well this is anti-hindu this is anti-indian and that's a really easy way to like bamboozle left-wing uh mm-hmm. identity like you know people who who are steeped in identity politics and this isn't like a this isn't me like knocking identity politics as an entire but we've been freaking quoting james baldwin this whole time <laughs> like we that's not that that's not the goal here but it is to say that like identity is 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 complicated and different and like we have to sort of like the u.s is not the only empire in this world it's not the only impre- oppressor in this world and when looking at like a world of many different oppressors and many different empires um some of which are like much more like relevant to some people's lives right like my like our armenians lives or the russian empire is much more relevant to their lives the turkish empire is much more relevant to their lives than the mm-hmm. american one in this particular mm-hmm. moment um mm-hmm. and so you know, like, that's just something, like, we have to, I don't know, like, these conversations have to be had with a lot of specificity. Um, and that's not, like, a, I think people get, like, they're like, well, well you know, now we, now we can't generalize at all. We can't make any broad theses. That's not true. Like, specificity and, uh, like, being able to identify these things does not prevent you from being able to have broader theses and, like, drawing out broader conclusions, which are vital for, I don't know, struggle. <laughs> um, but they're also like they have to be borne out by reality like you you can't mm-hmm. like you can't just create more and more subaltern people just because like you you're uncomfortable really parsing out who is oppressing them and what's affecting them the most um mm-hmm. so yeah armenians really like i think we've also done not a great job of it because we've you know like we've weaponized some of our privileges in ways that i think in the long run really to our own detriment um mm-hmm. because it's prevented us from being able to form alliances with groups that we have natural and like whose struggles are vital to ours and like who don't even know that our struggle is vital to theirs. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things and we can, we have to kind of slowly wrap up because oh my God. Two yeah. <laughs> but uh, so one thing on cast, I'm actually going, I'll show you guys like there's this book that, yeah, 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 yeah. I, so, so you know it. Good. Okay. Oh, wait, well, you should so say gonna, it out loud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to have her on. It's a book called, uh, the trauma of caste, a Dalit feminist meditation on survivorship, healing and abolition by Tinmozi Sandararajan. Apologies if I butchered the family name. Um, she was on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> she was on the conspirituality podcast as well. Folks can listen to that one. It was a really, really good episode. Um, but so, 
uh, I forgot what the second thing was. Um, Sorry, it's okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Um, but the yeah, so with that in mind, let us, if it's okay to kind of wrap up, and I usually ask folks uh, to do a bit of homework in which I ask them to just recommend uh, one, two, three books, however many they want to, uh, to, to recommend, and usually on any topic. Uh, it doesn't have to be on the topic that we're, you know, we've been discussing, or well, it can be. So kind of up to you, and then we'll, we'll uh, say goodbye to the... Uh, the patient soldiers who have survived <laughs> until now. Thank you, you for listening, the listeners. End of this, my God, you made it. You're yeah. you're amazing. You're here. <laughs> okay, uh, Karina, you want to yeah, go first? Yeah. So my book would be the one that I mentioned earlier um, in the podcast. It's called The Politics of Exile, and it's written by Elizabeth Dauphiné. Her her family name is spelled D A U P H I N E E. And again, it's kind of a meditation on you know whether you know, one can be objective in kind of hell times like, like war. Mm -mm. No. Oh God. Um, (laughs) Whenever somebody asks me for something to read, it flies out of my brain instantly. Um, I mean, I would say I'm like living in the U S right now. So this is the, but like, I, I, I I would say like, it's not a book, but um, our prison or this book, our prisons obsolete by Angela Davis. Um, Mm -hmm. It made me a lot more empathetic to my own people in a very bizarre Mm -hmm. way, but yeah. Cool. I've read, I've read that book. It's really good. Um, Okay. And now I'm also recommending stuff and I'm currently reading the Dawn of Everything by the two Davids, Graeber and Wendbro. And it's, it's, amazing <laughs> so just that and i should say like i've i've uh, worked and this is kind of a final thing like i've worked in a lot of different uh fields usually related to writing but to this day i'm very bad at reviewing books i'm like this book i like <laughs> this book no like that's that's my opinion on books i, I like book i don't like book that's it <laughs> i forget instantly what i've read and what i am reading the second somebody asks me about it so i'm gonna get off this call and be like i should have said that yeah. book and i should have said the other book <laughs> So bad. It's fine. And the books we mentioned, uh, as always, I'll mention them in the show notes. Um, and uh, yeah, with that in mind, uh, thank you both for listening. For thank you both for participating uh, in this uh, amazing chat. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that we have solved the world's problems, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's. I think whiteness has been resolved. Uh, Armenia is fine. All, all is good in the world. Uh, which is, you know, it's, it's what you can hope for with podcasts, right? Like that's that's kind of the, the scope oh, yes. of what I'm trying to do I here. I think this is the platonic podcast. This is it. <laughs> this is it. This is it. This. Uh, listeners, after listening to this, uh, feel free to check the news and you'll see that things are fine now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Go on, do it. Do it right now. <laughs> do it now. Do it now. <laughs> Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.